The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So, most of you know we've been taking a look at Ajahn Chah's book, Food for the Heart, for the last several months, getting about two-thirds of the way through. Tonight I want to talk a little bit about this chapter 19, and uh, Ajahn Chah is talking in a very wholehearted way about giving ourselves over to this practice, like mindfulness of breathing. And this real art of giving ourselves fully to something, anything really. And it's an art because uh, generally when we give ourselves fully to some activity, some experience, generally we rely on greed or aversion, like fear is driving that commitment or attachment is driving that commitment. So we want to, we need to actually figure out because we can't really be happy unless we give ourselves fully for the moment. But we won't be happy if that giving ourselves fully is coming out of fear or greed. So how can we be fully engaged with our lives but not propelled by greed or aversion? In a way, that's what we're learning with something simple, just being present with the body when we're sitting or being present with the breath or being present with all the different ways that we're sensitive to the world, like we did in the last several minutes when we were with eyes open, ears, of course, sensitive to sounds, the mind sensitive to thoughts, sensitive to sensations in the body. So here we are, a little bit like daily life, except we're not moving around, we're not talking, but we're sensitive in all these ways. So how can we give ourselves, in a sense, fully to that experience of being a sensory, sensitive human being, give ourselves fully to that without the mind being dragged down or oppressed by greed or aversion. So that the engagement is actually liberating. And this is the thing about, you know, these words that can be a real setup for us, like the word liberation. I mentioned, I think, in the sit or at the beginning, or we, we make hell out of the idea of perfection. If we have an idea of me being perfect or me becoming some perfect or better person, then we really create a hell for ourselves because then we judge ourselves. I'm here, but I want to be like this image I have of myself. So that's not the way. The way is really through this full engagement of the way that it is the way the body is, the sensations of the body, the way, the experience of seeing and hearing, whatever our sensitivity reveals in this moment. So we're going from an idealistic notion of who I am or what this life should be to a more direct, authentic experience. And the interesting thing about that we realize it doesn't require any kind of meaning. I mean, one of the things we have to shed, you know, when we're just being present with the breath, or present with the body, or present with all the different sense gates together, we realize that we don't need meaning. 
we don't need an explanation about what it is that's being known. We don't need words, in a way, to be fully alive, fully free, fully aware and compassionate. We think we do, and this thought, this tendency of the mind to be dependent on thoughts and ideas and beliefs and identities is real. Is a real uh, oppressive tendency in our mind. We get trapped, literally trapped by this dependence on meaning. So one of the things that comes in moments right at the beginning of practice is that experience of, you know, sometimes we call it being in the flow, when the mind becomes very simple, whether it's listening to the sound of a bird or being mindful of the breath going in and out. So there are many ways, of course. But the mind becomes really simple and pure, purely aware, and aware or connected or awake to what's happening in such a full way that the mind isn't trying or isn't needing, doesn't feel compelled to manipulate or organize the experience into some kind of meaning. It's just what it is. One of the ways the Satipatthana Sutta is translated, uh, one of the beginning paragraphs of this famous talk the Buddha gave on the foundations or establishments of mindfulness, is he talked about you know, the breath or all aspects of our experience in and of themselves. So what is the breath in and of itself, or the experience of sensation in and of itself, or thought in and of itself? Not the meaning that the mind has this tendency to apply or project on to the sensation, but just the sensation being known, just the thought being known. So, you probably know, or many of you know at least, that uh, the, in this style of practice at least, we talk a lot about these two wings that together allow the practice to gain some momentum and to be liberated, to literally free the mind up from the ways that the mind oppresses itself. It seems like it's the world out there that oppresses us, you know, the difficult relationships we have at work are oppressing. All the stupid things the politicians are doing, that's oppressive. You know, having to earn a living is oppressive. Having a body is oppressive. Getting older is oppressive. So it always feels like what's oppressive is out there, pressing down on us here. But the more we look carefully at our experience, the more we see that the oppression, the oppressing, is right here in the mind itself. It's the mind oppressing the mind. We have these moments where we really catch this, we really get this. I mean, we may, you may get it intellectually, or hopefully you've had some real experience where, for example, you're feeling relatively free or easy, and then some old psychological pattern arises and because you had a thread of mindfulness you were feeling pretty easy, pretty light, pretty light and then this all the conditioned pattern arises in our mind and the mind gets identified with it 
And in that process of it arising and the mind getting identified with it, it's like we start to feel really oppressed, really heavy, really caught by that. And then maybe after a few more moments, <clears throat> because of the momentum of our practice, the mind sees that conditioned pattern relatively clearly and in a sense pops that bubble. So let's say we were caught up in some defensive stance, like we're sitting, we're feeling free, and then we remember that some experience we had at work, and it seems like uh, somebody is kind of taking over some of our responsibilities, and we're getting defensive, you know, and getting identified with those thoughts, and identified with this idea that I've got this problem at work I need to deal with, and and then mindfulness arises because that hurts, maybe the pain of that drama in our mind triggers mindfulness, like, what's going on here? And the mind in that moment realizes, oh, it's just thoughts, just thoughts being known, just drama being known. And that recognition, that sense of space and that wise perspective causes that drama, the sense of being oppressed by that problem we're having at work can just fall away. And if we see something like that moment by moment really clearly, what arises in the mind very strongly and eventually unshakably is that it's the mind itself that oppresses itself. Although it seems superficially that this problem I have at work is really heavy for me, really oppressive, hard to deal with. But our actual experience shows it's not actually something outside of the mind that's difficult. What's difficult is this idea that the mind generates and then gets identified with, and that process of the thought arising, that's not even the problem. The problem is when the mind identifies with the thought in a particular way, takes it personally, and then personally feels oppressed by the meaning the mind is giving to that thought or that image. That's the oppression. And that's a that's a difficult insight to have because we're quite invested in our problems being out there. And it's quite humiliating in a sense to realize that we're doing this to ourselves. Whatever in all the different ways that we do it. I mean those experiences that we have that we feel some shame around or embarrassment around. You know, we may associate that with a particular experience, but actually it's something the mind is doing right now. Or feeling inadequate, uh, feelings of inadequacy, feelings like I'd really like to become that person, I'd really like that kind of life to be that kind of person. So, the Buddha teaches these two wings of calm and insight, just to make it simple. And they're really, we talk about them separately because it helps us understand the mind and understand the practice, but they really work seamlessly together. They need to work seamlessly together. And so, in our practice, and in this particular chapter, Ajahn Chah is really talking about um, what helps to break the cycles of feeling oppressed by our minds, by the uh, conditioned patterns of our minds. 
And it's really working, sort of uh, cultivating, developing the, this dynamic of calm and insight. Developing deeper experiences of tranquility and peace and ease. And deeper experiences of clarity and insight, the deepening of, in, uh, of understanding. And it makes a lot of sense, of course, that they work together because... When the mind is really calm, then it's not neurotic. You know, if we're feeling really content and calm, then the mind sees things clearly. And when it sees things clearly, then the mind can see what's in the way of calm. And together, they clean up what needs to be cleaned up. I'll read a little bit couple paragraphs from different pages in this chapter. So the chapter's called Just Do It. And it, this first part is, is uh, emphasizing uh, really important. He calls it the first stage of practice, Ajahn Chah does. And it, he's really emphasizing we need to know how to let go of the world. In fact, there's really no beginning to practice unless we can let go of the world. Otherwise, if we're sitting, it doesn't matter if we're sitting in the most beautiful monastery or retreat center, we've got the perfect cushion and the perfect posture. If we don't let go of the world, the mind, the thinking mind, is just going to keep doing what it does all day long, which is it's going to worry about this or plan that or compare ourselves to somebody else or wonder about something or fantasize about something or remember something, or think about the future, or even think about the practice. So, to even begin, we have to find some way to step outside of that pattern of thinking about life, thinking about things. And surprisingly, maybe, the way out, the way to step out isn't to uh, get angry at herself for thinking about things. I mean, in any way that we sort of directly, from that point of view of being the one who's thinking about things, we think we're going to get out of it by thinking about how to get out of it. You see how crazy that is. But that's our strong tendency. I mean, it sounds obvious when I say it that way, you know, we're going to think about not thinking about things. But believe me, you know, from years of experience, it's very easy to do. It's very easy to be sitting in meditation and to be thinking about meditation. Or thinking about wanting to be on retreat, or thinking about why I'm no good at meditation, or why I think I am good at meditation. Or wondering, am I meditating? It's endless. I'm not kidding. It's really endless. So it's really important. You'll get it when I read these first two paragraphs. You know why Ajahn Chah says it like this. So he's talking now about mindfulness of breathing. Of course, there are many different strategies for breaking this pattern, this strong pattern of thinking about, thinking about, thinking about. So he says, just keep breathing in and out like this. Don't be interested in anything else. It doesn't matter even if someone is standing on their head with their ass in the air. Don't pay any attention. Just stay with the in-breath and the out-breath. 
Concentrate your awareness on the breath. Just keep doing it. Don't take up anything else. There is no need to think about gaining things. Don't take up anything at all. Simply know the in-breath and the out-breath. The in-breath and the out-breath. Buddha on the in-breath, Do on the out-breath. This is a mantra used in the Thai forest tradition. Buddha, just a word that means Buddha or awake, to be awake. And so, it's like a mantra. Buddha. And you can use your own meditation words if you find it useful with your breathing practice. You could repeat the word calm, ease. So you might want to use an English word um, that has some meaning that might inform the practice. Or you can use that, that traditional word. And just remember it's sort of a reminder to be awake, to maintain this awareness of this is how it is now. Ajahn continues. Be aware in this way until the mind is peaceful, without irritation, without agitation, merely the breath going out and coming in. Let your your mind remain in this state. You don't need a goal yet. This is the first stage of practice. I'm skipping a couple pages. He says, Sit and watch the inhalation and exhalation. Make yourself comfortable with that. Don't allow the mind to get lost. If it gets lost, then stop. Look and see where it's got to. Why is it not following the breath? Go after it and bring it back. Get it to stay with the breath. And without doubt, one day you will see the reward. Just keep doing it. Do it as if it won't. Do it as if you won't gain anything. As if nothing will happen. As if you don't know who's doing it. But keep doing it anyway. Like rice in the barn. Ajahn Chah taught in Northeast Thailand, which is a very agricultural area. A lot of rice farmers. Like rice in the barn, you take it out and sow it in the fields. As if you were throwing it away, right? Sow it throughout the fields without being interested in it. And yet it sprouts. Rice plants grow up. You transplant it. And you've got sweet green rice. That's what it's about. This is the saying. Just sit there. Sometimes you might think, why am I watching the breath so intently? Even if I didn't watch it, it would still keep going in and out. Well, you always find something to think about. That's a view. It's an expression of the mind. Forget it. Keep trying over and over again. Make the mind peaceful. So before anything... We have to develop this insight that it is possible for the mind to let go of meaning. The meaning of me being here meditating, the meaning of me being a man who's 54 years old, the meaning of me having had this kind of day today, or me wanting to have this kind of day tomorrow. All of that meaning, all of those stories, thoughts, are, I don't fit with the practice. They literally have to be abandoned. And wanting to abandon all those thoughts is not the way to abandon all those thoughts. I'll say that again. Wanting to abandon all those thoughts is not the means, does not lead to abandoning all those thoughts. What leads to the thoughts falling away? You give the mind something to do. 
and you practice doing that with a whole heart, 100% completely, present with the breath, present with the knitting, present with the walking, present with the seeing, present with the hearing. So it doesn't really matter in sitting practice, not always, but often we work with things like the sensations of sitting, the predominant sensations in the body, or in a more refined way, the sensations of the breath going in and out of the nostrils, or some people prefer to feel the breath as the rising and falling of the abdominal wall. Or some people work with hearing, even in a quiet room, just that experience of hearing, however subtle or whatever those particular sounds are, it doesn't really matter. Because what matters is the 100% complete and full attention and the continuous full attention to the present moment. So any particular anchor will do, because what we're cultivating is 100% complete full attention to the present moment, and the breath is a simple vehicle to cultivate that full attention and to sustain that full attention, unbroken. And then we begin to experience the peace that Ajahn Chah is talking about. So it's not just calm, like I mentioned. You really can't separate calm and insight very easily. They really come together because even though we're just tranquilizing the mind, the mind realizes something. To become really calm, it has to realize that it's actually safe to not be thinking about things. I mean, one of the things about having a mind that thinks, like our mind does, is that it gets um, integrated with this survival instinct. And it's like we feel like we're not protecting ourselves if I'm not thinking about things. You know, our psychological and physical survival seems to be tied to whether we're thinking about what we can do to be happier, what we can do to get rid of what feels unsafe in our life. But the terrible and ironic thing is, is that ongoing thinking is one of the most destructive things. It leads us into all kinds of unskillful actions that actually cause, create a lot of danger for us. And just itself is quite stressful and debilitating for the health of the body. To be constantly worrying, for example, or planning, for example, or you know, all the other ways that we endlessly proliferate with our thoughts. It is not healthy, psychologically or physically, to be doing that. Yet, when we look at it, it seems like we're trying to take care of our life. But when we look a little bit more deeply, with a little bit more space in the mind, we realize how destructive it often is to be continuously thinking like that. So, even though it seems like this first part of practice is just learning how to become calm, because when we drop the mind's addiction to thinking about things and addiction to meaning, the meaning we get from thinking about things, that conceptual meaning, when the mind abandons that, puts that down in order to be present with the breath in a continuous way or present with any activity in a continuous way, we feel immediately calm. This is something that it's not like years later when you've been practicing steadily, but even just beginning, just doing a little of this, you'll feel a little calm. Because to whatever degree 
We're not worrying or planning or judging or comparing or wondering or fantasizing or remembering the past or thinking about the future. To whatever degree we're not doing that, then we're not experiencing the stress that comes along with that. That's why it can be even refreshing to, you know, you might even notice like even uh, when you have a really busy day at work, and you're so busy, so just getting whatever needs to be done done, that you don't even have time to be complaining that you have such a lousy job in your mind. You're just doing the next thing, doing the next thing. And you might find that at the end of a long, hard day, you actually feel a little bit enlivened. Because you haven't, not that you weren't physically working hard or even mentally working hard, but you weren't doing all that neurotic thinking about who you are and what you like and what you don't like about your life. You were too busy just being engaged, just doing the next thing. I remember when I was a young guy, uh, I did a lot of backpacking, and uh, I lived in Washington, D.C. for a while. We'd go out to West Virginia and other places in the area. And one of the things we like to do is run down streams, you know, boulder hopping. I don't know if you've ever done that. It's a little dangerous. I mean, it's not that dangerous. But it's like you have to be really paying attention to do that. And that's why it's so much fun. It's like you have to, you can't be thinking about who you are or whether you're good at jumping from boulder to boulder if you're actually doing it. You're just doing it. And there are, you know, so many examples of this. Some of you probably in this room do those, you know, relatively extreme things. Certainly more extreme things these days that people do. I mean, it's amazing what the extremes people go to to concentrate their minds, to let go of everything else. I mean, that's, it's even in, in terms of risky behaviors that people do are in some way uh, a very inefficient way of having a moment of not doing what we normally do, you know, generating oppressive thoughts that we then have to live inside of. We generate thoughts that create a conceptual reality that we then inhabit. And this is so oppressive that there's whole industries that have been created to give us five minutes or ten minutes, you know, where we jump off a bridge and bungee jump. So we get, what is what is that, maybe four minutes or three minutes or less of bouncing around where maybe we're not thinking about things. And then, then 10 or 15 minutes, once they brought us back up, <coughs> then we're right back in that neurotic thinking, like, oh, God, I can't wait till I tell so-and-so about this, or, you know, well, that wasn't much, that was such a waste of money. So we're right back in our neurotic thinking and feeling depressed by it, like I've wasted so much money, or i got to tell somebody about this, or did you get the photograph of me <laughs> in free fall? or whatever it is. And it just goes on and on. So we can systematically train our mind to let go of the world. And we can do this all day long, and we can set aside 45 minutes a day and formally do it in our meditation practice, where we're using body sensations or the breath more specifically or hearing or any number of objects, anchors, and we're using this very generous, wholehearted 
force in the mind. We give ourselves to that. We give the attention to that. So I mindful is such a nice word because we're allowing the mind to be so full of this experience that literally there's no space in the mind for it to be doing anything else in that moment. So it's just doing this one thing, just knowing the breath coming in and then sustaining that. So then in the next moment, it's knowing the breath coming in. The next moment, it's knowing the breath going out. And even if the mind gets distracted, if the mind is really continuous, you can in that moment know that the mind has this impulse to worry. So it doesn't even <coughs> need to lose a beat of the mindfulness practice. It can just continue. So even distractions are just another thing that's being known. Oh, this is how it is. Thinking is being known. Worrying is being known. Breathing in is being known. Being, breathing in is being known. Breathing out is being known. Breathing out is being known. Breathing in is being known. Breathing in is being known. Pain is being known. Aching is being known. Not liking the pain is being known. So sustaining that present moment attention, either with a, sing, a singular object, like not forgetting the breath, or moving around like we did at the last part of the sit, where we had different objects that in different moments would arise and be known. Seeing is being known. Hearing is being known. Feeling sensation in the body is being known. Thinking or emotion is being known. But the, the real art is that continuity. And what allows for that continuity is to we have to create this value and strengthen this value of mindful awareness, that seeing of things in and of themselves, not being, not reinforcing the mind's dependency on meaning, what my mind, how my mind is taking this to be, or what my mind is taking this to be in terms of some idea. Like you could be sitting, maybe you even did during the sit, you know, sitting and maybe you were starting to feel kind of calm. And then it might, the mind neurotically might want to organize that. Meditation is such a good thing. I should really be doing this all the time. I should be doing this every day. And it just seems so important for the mind to organize, to define the experience we're having. But see, when we're doing that, then we're not meditating. We're thinking about it. And then whatever benefit we've gotten from previously having been meditating, where we're aware of the breath coming in, coming in, coming in, aware of the sensations of the breath going out, going out, going out, whatever benefit we got then is now dissipating. So maybe we actually got, uh, there was some sense of unification, the mind, heart, body coming together in the present moment, that sense of wholeness, that sense of inner happiness or bliss, ease, coming together. But now we're thinking about how great meditation is. And so the causes that allowed for that sense of wholeness aren't there anymore. Now what's present are uh, the causes for tension in the mind. Like wanting to be the person who practices every day. Regretting that I didn't start this when I was in my 20s or my God, I should have started in kindergarten. <laughs> you know, we can be thinking this way. And all of a sudden, if we look, we notice how tight the mind and body has become. Because, and we think, well, God, I'm meditating and I feel so uncomfortable. But we're not meditating. We're worrying or wondering or planning or hoping. All of these patterns are stressful. 
for the mind and body. What isn't stressful is abandoning all of that. That's enlivening and uh, healing. This healing, this spiritual healing, I think that's the best way to call it, where we go from being scattered, the mind, the heart being broken apart or fragmented in all the ways that our thinking and worrying does, and all all of that is ending, it's ceasing, and the mind is realizing its wholeness, its unity. And it's not unity as an idea. (laughs) It's just uh, the natural experience of the mind that isn't being fragmented by thinking of self and what the self wants and what the self is afraid of and whether the self is better than or worse than. These kind of thinking patterns are quite destructive in a spiritual sense, emotional sense, psychological sense. One of the things that you can experiment with is the kind of effort that's required to maintain this thread of mindfulness. It's actually really subtle, which makes it harder than it would otherwise be. I mean, if it was like chopping wood, you know, where we got to really put our weight into it and... Uh, kind of aggressive in that way, it would be pretty easy because human beings use that kind of energy all the time. I mean, we use it not just to get through our jobs, or to, but we use it to fight each other all the time. I mean, there's nothing that motivates someone to work hard than to want to get even or to prove that they're right and somebody else is wrong. When I've got a little thing going on with my wife, you know, some thing that I, where I think I'm right and I think she's wrong. Maybe you find this familiar too, but it's like my mind really goes to work to collect the facts that support my point of view and to anticipate her point of view and why it's wrong. <laughs> it's like a lawyer, you know, might collect their arguments and do the research and and not, you may never have this discussion with the person, but if it ever did arise, <laughs> you'd be prepared. And it, it's like we do that all the time, where we're working hard. But that's not the effort that this takes. It's much, much more subtle than that to sustain present moment awareness. It's, it's both recognizing what, uh, even before the recognition, it's, uh, valuing the present moment, the experience of present moment awareness. There is a, a particular experience of being present, and you can check on it right now, like just being aware of sitting and being aware of hearing of my voice and being aware of any meaning that comes out of the words. In a sense, we're really landing And there's something trustworthy, you know, you could say words like grounding, there's something right about being present. Because in that moment of being present, the mind isn't struggling in any way to make things other than what they are. So when we, in a sense, land in the present moment, aware, connected with the present moment, 
then in that moment, the mind isn't neurotically trying to sustain its idea of what's true. Because we don't actually have to do anything to make this the way that it is. You know, the present moment. It's already this way, the present moment. So there's a existential relaxation in being present. Because in that moment, the mind doesn't really have to do anything but be. And it recognizes that. So that's, out of that direct experience, which we've all had to some degree, we then develop a value. We value that experience, that sense of release when the mind's present. It's as much as a value as kindness, like a lot of us might have kindness as a value, or compassion as a value, or a respect for truthfulness as a value. Well, even more profound, more powerful is this value of presence, or present moment awareness. So once we value it, then then we get interested, well, what actually does it take to be present? Right? That's then just like we would like, well, what does it take to be a kind human being or a generous human being? These other values that we have. We get interested in once we value it, like if you value having a lot of money, you get really interested, well, what can I do to get more money? Or if you be, if you value having power, or if you value being attractive, then you put a lot of energy in, you know, it's easy to kind of work for something you value. Or if you really value the present moment, you get really interested about it. Like, what how does that work? How do I sustain this? How do I uh, rediscover this experience of being present? That release of just being. And the interesting thing is because it's an uncreated experience, we don't have to create the present moment. It's already the way that it is. So it's all about not doing something. You know, the letting go as opposed to the doing, the becoming. And so, what do we do? Well, the mind needs to remember this. So, this is this is a good way, and actually at the root of mindfulness, sati, is the word remembering. So, we're remembering something. We're remembering this, you know, the present moment. But not the present moment as a concept or an idea, like, oh, I'm at common ground. That's not remembering the present moment. You don't need the words, I'm at common ground, to be present. In fact, thinking I'm at common ground isn't being present unless you realize, oh, that's just a thought being known. Then you're present. But we don't need to describe the present moment to ourselves. That's neurotic activity. So the sustaining the present moment awareness is just about that. It's just that remembering this. Remembering, remembering, remembering. Same thing like when you work with mindfulness of breathing. This is why it's so challenging because, you know, we think I gotta get in there and breathe. You know, I gotta breathe in. Don't forget to breathe out. I gotta breathe in. It's like, imagine how crazy that would be if we had to do that walking. Okay, now what? Oh yeah. Left, right. And it would just be crazy to be living that way. The body knows how to breathe. The body knows how to walk. In fact, it's surprising what the body and mind know what knows what to do. How what 
how it already knows what to do. Even really sophisticated things like driving home or falling in love or falling out of love. All of these things happen naturally. They're just natural expressions of conditioned forces. So this letting go can be trusted. And so much of practice is trusting letting go and uh, investing instead in just remembering. We're remembering that letting go is safe. We're remembering it's already like this now. This is already being known. This moment is already being known, and it's like this. That's what we're doing, is remembering. Now, how much effort does it take to remember? So let's just do an experiment, and then I'll open it up for discussion. And you can do, you could just rest your hand on your leg, for example, or this is a little bit more of a concrete experience, so you might want to just move your hand back and forth. And it might be easier with your eyes closed. <clears throat> then we won't be judging each other as we watch other people move their hand back and forth. God, they're doing it in the wrong way. When will they learn? So just bring your awareness to that simple movement, moving the hand to the left and then moving it to the right in an easy way. And then we're going to practice giving the mind, giving the heart completely to the experience, the actual sensations of that moving. And of course, it doesn't really matter how you're moving because any giving ourselves is what it's about, not the particular experience of the sensations, but being fully present, remembering it's like this. Getting a sense of what kind of effort is needed to remember it's like this. And notice you don't need an image in your mind of the hand moving back and forth. That's extra. Just feeling the sensations of movement. Really valuing the continuity, the unbrokenness of the awareness. How to be interested without getting tight. be compelled to think in many different kinds of ways, but almost as if we're riding a wild bronco, we're trying to sustain the interest, the remembering that this is like this now.
once we've had really nice experiences in practice, we're not interested in practicing when the experiences aren't nice, and that's attachment. So it is a lot more, it will be more messy when we don't have those supports. Like even coming to the center for a lot of people, it's a lot easier to sit with other people than it is to sit at home. But that doesn't mean it's more skillful to sit at the center. Sometimes, just because it's difficult and the mind wanders more when we're sitting at home, we might learn a lot more about the mind. And we might develop a kind of confidence when we don't have the support of the community or the Dharma talk. So I encourage people to take advantage of what the mind likes as a support for the practice, but to also be interested in practicing places that aren't so easy and just make sure that we're not judging the practice by how pleasant it is. It's nice to have a pleasant set, but that doesn't mean it's a good set in, in the deeper sense. You know, it just means it's really nice, it's pleasant. But a good sit may be the most painful sit we ever had, but we learned some really important things in that painful sit. I mean, it was a struggle. Each moment was a struggle not to bolt, not to get up and leave. But we stayed there, or at least to some degree, we, to some, for some time we stayed there. And each moment we stayed with it was like a powerful learning. The thoughts come to mind? Yeah, Darcy. So much of the teaching is undoing, undoing, undoing. Way out in the world, my relationship with the world. And and some of my relationship with the world is being attacked, and that experience is cost. That is offensive. And I would rather be calm than how I was before. But Yeah, like one of the things, we're not, the mind isn't identified or attached to the undoing, but we allow that undoing to happen, like you suggest, but we're not identified or attached, so the rebuilding is allowed to happen. We just keep taking things apart. Wisdom and calm just keep taking things apart, like the value of calm, the value of seeing clearly, doesn't allow things to get built or to stay built. But in any moment, something can be put together. And especially if it's coming out of compassion or love or generosity or forgiveness, you know, big actions can happen. You know, big movements. You make that phone call. You speak to this person. You go get that job. That can come out of really wholesome, beautiful intentions. And we're not... Stopping, and they, that can also fall apart, but it can just be regenerated in the next moment. So you'll see 
that even though in the beginning we seem to be emphasizing letting things fall apart, we're not preventing things from sprouting up. And you'll see intentions that you really trust, naturally trust, like to care for yourself, like to go to the refrigerator and feed your body. You know, you'll be sitting there and you'll be really calm. And then there will just be this very beautiful thing, like, uh, I'm going to go feed this body. You know, and we, and then, as that's arising in the mind, the mind recognizes that's a very wholesome, pure intention. Nothing to be afraid of. And so, the body just follows it. It's just sort of, that intention, in a sense, inflates the body into action. And there's nothing to stop it from doing whatever it's going to do. And these are the really nimble, beautiful expressions of freedom. You know, the more that we're mindful, the more we'll catch moments where we're saying something, doing something in a very free and skillful way. And we look, in a sense, we look at that action and we're so impressed by how clean and traceless it is. Like there's not leaving behind any baggage just taking care of business, but in a very nimble and skillful way. Generally colored by or uh, coming out of love, some flavor of love. So part of it is just being patient, but not patient like we're repressing action, but just allowing action to naturally arise. And even if it ends up being coming from some neurotic place, we'll see it eventually. If not in that initial moment, maybe a few moments down the road, we'll kind of catch, oh, this is, this is feeling heavy. This is feeling oppressive. Well, ask yourself, what's in the way of you acting? Like, what's in the way of the body making the phone call, getting on the computer, replying to an email. Is it fear? Like fear of losing the calm? So you have to look at what's keeping the body and mind from engaging life, including livelihood. Because this system, this mind-body system, it does care about its life. You don't There isn't anybody who has to try to care about this life. It's just built into the fabric of mind and body, this care about survival. So then the the more appropriate question, well, what's in the way of that natural force of survival from expressing itself in skillful ways? What's in the way? And it would either have to be fear or greed or some kind of neurotic force that's suppressing it or repressing it. So that's another way to practice, is just to feel that enlivening quality. Remember, desire is like life energy. Desire becomes neurotic when we take it personally. But desire itself is just the force of life. You know, that's what life does. It moves. It does things. Thanks, Darcy. That's a good comment question that you brought up. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words and take a breath together. appreciating these teachings from Ajahn Chah, from the Buddha, and all of our spiritual ancestors, the women, the men, 
with busy lives, with conditioned minds just like ours, did their practice, shared it, one generation followed by the next. And then here we are receiving the teachings in our busy lives, doing the best we can to cultivate wisdom and compassion and to be a force for peace and freedom from suffering here in our hearts and in our world. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.